Okay, so welcome back to church history class. And uh, so we've gone for the summer, but... Oh, yep, this will be fun. Alright! Going through the Age of Revolution, we just got finished talking about the Civil War, which means we kind of just need to pick up after we just got finished talking about the Civil War, right? Because war changes countries. We'll see this after World War One. We'll see this after World War Two. We'll see this after Korea. We'll see this after the Vietnam War. Every time we have a major war, it changes the vibe. Do you remember what uh, what the basic vibe in the United States was before the Civil War? What was going on? Those big prayer groups. Huge prayer groups. This massive move of the Holy Spirit. People were coming to know the Lord right and left. The whole country was just on fire for Christ, except for that whole division between people thing. Other than that, it was great. And then we had a civil war, and all that went away. Because everybody focused on the civil war, and everybody got disillusioned, and so they came out of it just tired and frustrated. And nobody wanted to do prayer meetings like that anymore. See, because war changes things. It, it, it Sometimes it makes things, ironically, sometimes it makes things better. It makes a country draw together. Sometimes, not so much. Well... Before I get into much of anything, I, there are a couple things going on post-Civil War where we're coming out to look at some vocab. I know, I know, but it's but there's but there's stuff that, that you probably have heard, but you may not actually be familiar with. So, for instance, the term United States. Everybody goes, yeah, I'm very familiar with that. Before the Civil War, there were two major ways that people referred to the conglomeration of all that kind of stuff. Now, what... Yep, now, one, one you should know right off the bat, just think of the Civil War, there's the Confederacy and the Union. the Union. That's what most people refer to it as. If you were going to refer to your country, you refer to it as the Union. This is where everybody says, yep, this is where we come together, we are one unified nation, we're the Union. This is what people would say you know, in toasts, God bless the Union. That's, that's why most people talked about the United States. Why might people move away from calling it that after the Civil War? It represents the Yeah, if you're trying to get everybody together, maybe you don't say, now we're all my side. You know, that, that's probably not the way to do that if you're trying to heal things. The other way is to refer to as these United States. Grammatically, what does that mean? Okay. They're all separate, these. These United States. So we're focusing on the fact that we're all states and that we're unified. Right? After the Civil War, that shifts to the United States. Not these United States anymore, the United States. What does that grammatical shift suggest? No other states are united. Okay. No other states are united. Fine, fine. Focusing on the unity, but not just focusing on the unity. Grammatically, what is the same? The United States. It's one thing, right? Which means United States is no longer focusing on the states. United States is now a title. Like Wendy and I were just talking the other day about the Our Father. I hate it when people talk about the Our Father. It grates against me with massive, massive grating because that makes no grammatical sense whatsoever. The Our Father, there's no grammar there. The only way that you can say the Our Father instead of referring to it as the Lord's Prayer or the prayer 
that Jesus gave us as a model or whatever. The only way you could say the Our Father is if the words Our, our Father have simply become a title. They mean nothing. It's just a title. That's what's going on here. United States no longer means United States. It means the name of the country. And so you're focusing on the country, the one big thing called the United States. No, no, because it would just say United States of America. No. Anyway. Do you look at it back that that was a good thing? It depends on how you look at it. It depends on how much of a federalist you are. If you're one of these people that thinks states' rights is crucially important, you might see this as a step back. If you see something as, oh, finally, we have some nice centralized government, you might see this as a step forward. Um, when you think about, let's apply this for a second. When you think about being part of the Christian church, do you tend to think of it as being part of our church? If I talk about being, being part of the Christian church, do you think our church? Do you think of it as a collection of churches? Or do you think of it as the capital C church as an aggregate of churches? Do you focus on the set? Uh, uh, none of this is bad. It's just an interesting question. Do you think of the local community? Do you think of a bunch of them that are all working together? Or do you think of the big monolith that has a bunch of parts? Well, to capitalize that, uh, then I think of a title of a specific denomination. Oh, well, there you go, yeah. But that's, that's why this, that third one is, it, it, it becomes a title that is something that has pieces. Parts that come together, or a thing that has parts? How do you think about it? Kind of what they're trying to figure out about the United States. Oh, another one. Have you, how many of you have heard of the Reconstruction? Okay, most of you. Exactly what that entails, not everybody always knows. Lincoln was extremely consistent in everything, in all of his speeches, he didn't just want to beat the South. He wanted to heal the Union. He even went so far as to say, if, if I could heal the Union by freeing the slaves, I'd do it. If I could heal the Union by not freeing the slaves, I'd do it. My point is, I want to heal the Union. I want to get us all back together, and I want us to be one big happy family again. Right? So, even as the, he was still around, and even as the war was, was winding down in, in 1864, 1865, he designed this, this, this program of reconstructing the governments of the southern states so that they could fold back into the Union. And he's like, how do we do this with the least amount of everybody poking one another? How do we get them to come back into the Union without creating more problems? Because once you actually have been a rebellion, it's kind of hard for everybody to get along in the same room again. So he said, any Southerner could swear an oath to support the Union. If you say, yes, no matter what I did before, I swear on the Bible that I will support the Union and I will not rebel against it. If 10% of a state's population did that, they could be readmitted into the Union. Just need 1 in 10. If 1 in 10, because he's figuring it, how many other people just don't care? So it's like, if I can get 10% of you to say, publicly, on a Bible, I will not fight against the Union, I support the Union. That's fine. Life is good. Does that seem fair? Sure. Okay. 1864, Tennessee, Arkansas, Louisiana are already done. They already consider themselves back in the Union. We're not even done with the Civil War yet. And those states are back in the Union. That's good. 
Now, there were all these radical Republicans. I know it's a hard thing to wrap your head around. They were referred to as the radical Republicans. There was a time, you know. Anyway, the radical Republicans were pushing against Lincoln, and they were trying desperately in Congress to push for a more intense uh, action against the South. After Lincoln died, those radical Republicans basically pushed through some really much more intense uh, laws of Reconstruction. Because, A, they thought 10% is a little low. They thought Lincoln was being a little conciliatory. And B, they're like, these guys have been killing my cousins. No, step on them. You know, we, we need to control them. Put down military governors. Occupy the South. So states are now required to have at least 50%. Got to have at least 50%. Not just 50% of their people aren't planning to fight against. 50%, half of your people have to go on record publicly that they are supporting the Union. Then you could be readmitted. Even then, they had hoped, Lincoln vetoed this, they originally hoped that the oath would say, I never supported the Confederacy. That was always wrong. I, that was a horrible thing. Anybody who supported the Confederacy was evil. It's like, yeah, Lincoln's like, that's nuts. Because you're going to force people to lie or not be able to take the oath. At which point the radical, the radical Republicans are like, I don't want somebody to take the oath if they actually support the Confederacy. Well, then you'd never get these, these states back in. Fine, then they remain military governorships. They're fine with that. The Reconstruction moved. It changed. It morphed from being originally all about healing. How do we get everybody back together again? And changed into how do we control the South? They've gone, they've gone South. <laughs> anyway, they've gone South. How do we fix that? How do we control them? Can you see how that sort of thing happens? Now, let me ask you this. We, as conservative Christians in our country, with our own issues going on today, do we as Christians seriously, really, ultimately want to work towards spiritually healing our nation? Or spiritually controlling our nation? What's really the priority? Do we want to make sure that this country gets back on track and does the right stuff again? Or do we want to bring our country to Christ? What's our actual priority? Because I'm not sure that's entirely cut and dry. Personally, I'm a big fan of, as Christians, our job should be trying to draw our country to Christ. But the rhetoric you tend to hear from people is, we want to get this country back on track and doing the stuff that they should be doing. See the difference? Lincoln versus radical Republicans. Alright. So ironically, most, most historians would say, a lot of Southern historians would say, the worst thing that happened for the South was that Lincoln got assassinated. Because he was actually trying to help them with different things. They cheered it. They cheered his assassination news in the streets. Not everybody. Lee was aghast. Lee was just brokenhearted when he heard about it. But a lot of people out south are like, yay, ding dong, the witch is dead. You, go, you really don't get it. This really would this would have been the best thing if he would have stuck around. Oh. You heard the terms carpetbaggers or scalawags. Okay, hopefully most of you. Again, this may not be terms, though, even if we're familiar with them, we may not know what they actually mean. Part of the Reconstruction efforts, by definition, you're going to have to send a lot of people down there. You're going to send advisors. You're going to send uh, northerners down the south to help fix things. 
some of these people kind of use that for their own benefit to make a lot of money off the people. I know, go figure. You ever hear of people war profiteering? Yeah. These transient northerners were oftentimes corporate referred to as carpetbaggers. Why? Yeah, well, it's because it oftentimes was. I mean, it's a cheap, large bag. It's easy to carry a lot of stuff around because it's crazy light. But because it's made out of carpet, it's very durable. And because it's made out of carpet, it's very flexible. So you can stuff a lot of stuff in there. You can get a lot of things into a carpet bag. Right? <laughs> okay, you laugh, but that is the joke with Mary Poppins. Is you can get a lot of stuff into a carpet bag. And nobody gets that. Everybody looks at that and goes, hey, yeah. I'm like, no, but that's why she has a carpet bag. They're like, man, how can you get all that stuff in there? Anyway. But so, if you're a transient northerner, you're, you're just going to go down for several weeks or several months. You're not planning to stay there. Your home is up, up north. You don't want to be dragging a trunk from town to town. What do you do? You just like, put everything in a carpet bag. It's their version of a duffel bag or, or your uh, carry-on luggage. But they were roundly perceived as all of them, not much more than war profiteers. Pretty much everybody in the South hated all these guys. Anybody coming down from the North, no matter what. Which is sad because most of them were either businessmen that just said, I see a need. I can make some money. Does that make me a bad person? Isn't that what businessmen do? I, I make money off things. Or government agents who were genuinely set down to help. Or even missionaries. There's a lot of carpetbaggers that were missionaries going, this is a very broken, hurting people. How do I help? But how can missions efforts, our missions efforts, overseas, even across the street, how can those get conflated with things that people did that weren't so cool? Yeah? What's happening in world missions, obviously, like, the missionaries often went with the uh, conquerors. Yeah. Understandably so. Either because they wanted to try to pick up the pieces afterwards, they're like, wow, these conquerors did bad things, and so we're going to come help. Or, oh, this suddenly opened things up. All those all those Muslim slavers that were running around shooting everybody, well, the British just got rid of all those. Which means there's a whole lot of former slaves sitting here who don't know the Lord. Well, we'll go down. Well, you're still a white guy dressed in clothes that look a lot like the white guys dressed in clothes that were shooting everybody. And who are now in control. Um, what about, okay, that's classic overseas missions. What about people you might talk to in your own neighborhoods or at work? How might your altruistic efforts get conflated with less altruistic things? Yeah. Well, I know in college, um, we went to Bible, and they had a class from Evangel College opening preaching and that kind of stuff, and people would hear these young guys learning to preach and stuff, and doing some of them doing a great job, some of them being very judgmental. And then there was also an evangelist that wasn't from the school that was nasty. Yeah, there was a guy that came every there was a guy that came every spring and he'd get up on the on the hill and he'd start off by going, "I'm talking to you whores in your jeans," and he just go. Oh no! No, don't be a miser. Try to go out in the crowd and go. He's not being a good Christian right now. So, so you try. You try to talk to somebody at work, or you try to talk to your neighbor. What could be the problem? Why might they not want to listen to you? Could be that they have all sorts of personal issues. They don't really want to deal with Christ, etc. But in this context, what else could be the problem? Whenever you tell anybody about sin, anything's wrong. 
they all view you as that person that walked the hill. Then they're just insulting you and telling you what to be. And maybe they've never even actually met somebody like that. But maybe there's this straw man in their head that this is what Christians are like. Did you use any buzzwords that happen to trip a switch and sound like that trigger. image? Yeah, did you use a trigger word that made them go, oh, you're just like all these other guys? I don't know. Got to be careful about that. So, there are some times, there were corrupt officials, there were different greedy people, there were self-righteous Christians. But not all of them. Like most of them, there's actually not a bad system. But if you're already sensitized to that, if you already feel like these northerners beat you and now they're coming down to tell you what to do, all it takes is a handful. So, southerners already felt like they were living in occupied territory, that the north was coming down and, 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 and in their carpet bags with all their, with all their might of, of military strength oppressing the poor south here in the south, which is exactly what Lincoln wanted to avoid, right? Which leads us to scalawags. When you think of scalawags, what do you normally think of? Why? Exactly. I have no idea why we started thinking about scalawags with pirates. Maybe because there was a movie called Scalawag about a pirate. I don't know. But it's a relatively recent thing. Because pirates didn't use terms like scalawag. Not necessarily. Originally, it was to, used to refer to southerners that supported the reconstruction. That's what a scalawag, actually technically, originally it's a Scottish term for a sickly cow. So A cow that's not worth anything. All it does is eat what a good cow should eat. All, it doesn't give you milk, doesn't give you beef, it's pointless. So you can probably see why Southerners go, so anybody who is from the South who supports the Reconstruction, you're like some sickly cow, all it does is eat, eat food and breathe oxygen that good people should be having. So kind of like an Uncle Tom? Sort of, sort of. You're sucking up to the wrong people. Yeah. But again, the Reconstruction was not in general bad. And there were a lot of Southerners that went, actually, it's good. We kind of got pounded on it. It would be really nice to have people come down and help us. It'd be nice to get an influx of northern capital. It's kind of nice that the federal government is paying to rebuild our government. It's actually, this guys, this is not a bad idea. In fact, there were a lot of Scalawags that, that supported the enfranchisement of former slaves. They're like, you know, our economy just got destroyed, and we can't have slaves anymore. What we really need is to let former slaves own their own businesses, they need to be able to vote, we need to fold them into society or else this is going to be awkward and weird. We can't do that. And that's going to torque off a lot of people, right? If they already feel like these northerners come down changing everything for this to happen, not a good thing. Which gives rise to the Ku Klux Klan. Right? Because this is where it started. Not during the Civil War, after the Civil War. There are three different versions of the Ku Klux Klan in America, and the, the name is derived from the Greek word kuklos, meaning circle, because they're a Christian circle, a, a circle of Christian brothers who are all coming together to defend the South. That is one of it. That's not all of what they're trying to do. Can you be a Christian and think that you're doing things as a good Christian and still be really a really horrible Christian? Can you do horrible things in the name of God? Give me an example of modern times in America. Don't go to the Crusades. Don't go to the Ku Klux Klan. What can we do? What can we do? What can people do? What can the church do that we wrap in God terms but is not even remotely honoring God? Well, I think that's the 
Okay, what else? Go ahead. Uh, what about uh, what about picketing people's funerals with placards that say that God hates the deceased? What about any time that we sit in our cause, okay? Because technically, all that is all those other Christians. Are there any times that we as Christians can do nasty things and say, "But I'm the one being righteous"? Can we lambast people that think differently than we do because we're righteous and they're not? That's what we're thinking about as, as, as individuals. Not just what do Christians at large, that big capital C church, what can our little C church do? What can we as Christians do that may be at least on that same road? Okay. As you can imagine, first version of the KKK was all about race, right? And against the North, against the carpetbaggers and stuff. Their first Grand Wizard was Nathan Bedford Forrest. Anybody remember that guy from what we were just talking about a while back? Civil War general. Anybody remember anything about him as a Civil War general? Didn't he kill all the blacks? Oh, you're, you're good. He's a jerk who led the massacre at Fort Pillow, where 2,500 Confederates slaughtered 600 Union soldiers even after they surrendered, in part because the, they were African Americans and because the officers had the unmerited gall to actually command African Americans. And Nathan Bedford Forrest is like, oh, we want to show that that blacks cannot be involved in this sort of thing. They cannot. They cannot be expected to actually, you know, do anything of merit. They're not capable. Well, it also helps that you had nearly five times as many guys and that they'd already thrown down their weapons and said, we give up. Yeah, racist twerk. Considered itself an insurgent movement, though. This is more than just being, more than just being racist. They're like, we're a resistance against the northern occupation. So what do resistance workers do? I mean, we cheer the French resistance, don't we, in World War II movies? They're the good guys. So what kind of good guy stuff did the French resistance do? They bombed railroads. They killed Nazis. They killed collaborators, right? That's what, that's what good resistance people do. They wear the berets and we cheer them. That's what these guys did. They attacked carpetbaggers and scalawags and free blacks, anybody that was willing to get rid of the classic southern system. They're trying to topple the reconstruction itself. That's what it should be, right? See, go hang the carpetbaggers from Ohio. You cheer that in World War II, don't you? What makes these guys the bad guys? We don't agree with them. Personally, I sit there and I go, because the Nazis were the bad guys and the Union wasn't. But I get the point. If you've ever said yay to the French Resistance in a World War II movie, you can get the point. Can I ask yeah. a question? When you, before you spoke about what he had done at Fort Pillow, uh -huh. was there any, like from the Confederate government, saying not a good move? For him to have done this? Yes. Not really. In fact, around this time, the, the, the Confederate government had made it a capital crime to um, to command black troops. If you were ever found being an officer commanding black troops, you would be put summarily to death even if you surrendered. Okay. Around this time. So, wacky fun that. All right. So, this iteration of KKK was suppressed um, with the Civil Rights Act of 1871. So the KKK lasted for a grand total of what? Like three years? 
Okay. That's all the existence of the KKK. Because in the Civil Rights Act of 1871, they suspended habeas corpus for white supremacist groups. Remember what habeas corpus is? What? Anybody remember? Well, yeah, your right to sit there and say, I'm being held illegally. Hey, you can't do this. Yeah, if you're a white supremacist, we can get mow you all we want. It is the law of the land that we can get mow you. I mean, we look at it now and we say, oh, well, what happened at Guantanamo Bay? That's wrong. That became the law of the land here when it comes to, to white supremacists. You, if we capture you, we can throw you in a pit. We may or may not try you at some point. You may or may not get access to a lawyer. We'll get around to it if we feel like it. That's going to stop things pretty quick, isn't it? Now, here's the thing. There's a whole lot of difference of opinion floating around out there about how appropriate it is to suspend the civil rights of one group to protect the civil rights of another group. How is that a question that we might face today? Well, not too long ago, probably over 20 years ago, there was a Bible camp that was being held here in Central Illinois by the Klan. And they were calling it a Bible camp. And uh, they showed it, you know, the paper and stuff like that. And, you know, putting themselves under the auspices of religious freedom and things like that. Okay. So, I mean, that wasn't too long. But if we disagree with them, can we shut down their Bible camp when we don't shut down the Bible camp of the Baptists? Okay, in, in what ways today do we have to deal with the question of is it okay to suspend the rights of one group to protect the rights of another group? Is it kind of like the uh, pharmacies that have to, uh, the pharmacists that have to prescribe the pill when they don't comply with the Okay, that's an interesting. Or the businesses that have to supply that for their, have to pay for supplying that for their employees if it goes flat out against the heart of that business? I mean, at what point do you say, I'm sorry, I don't care what you want, this is what you have to do to your employees? Or at what point do you say, well, it's your business, you get to choose. Isn't that what the whole Hobby Lobby thing was all about? Went to the Supreme Court. Do they or do they not have the right to their own civil rights on this issue? Are they a private company or a public company? All right, second version of the KKK. That didn't actually emerge until 1915. So from 1871 to 1915, no KKK. It was just this little itty-bitty thing. It's a bunch of guys in burlap sacks over their heads, and they were done in three years. It was nothing. This one was a very nationalistic one. Whereas the other one was waving rebel flags and stuff, this one's waving the American flag. That's what the KKK is, right? When you think of the KKK, that's what you think of, right? Very nationalistic, saying, no, 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 we're not Southern. We're all Americans. What's going on in 1915? Like those guys over, there. over where? World War I. Over there. Yeah, yeah. World War I is going on in, in Europe. We're starting to get involved here, but not yet. Because everybody thinks, whoa, 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 it's like 1914. We came in at the end. You know. But that's because America was basically isolationist. Don't get involved. Don't go get involved in foreign wars. So we're trying to avoid any kind of outside influences. Catholics, Jews, blacks, any kind of Europeans that don't look like us. Asians. Anybody other than white Anglo-Saxon Protestants are dangerous invaders, and we need to save America from them. We just need to, we need to circle the wagons and protect America from all the crazy people. That's the equivalent of 
That's the Ku Klux Klan, and that's what most Americans felt at the time. That's true. <laughs> so, what's our perspective on us people today? Do we see them as brothers yet to be, or are we uncomfortable with them, or even kind of afraid of them? Here's the thing. Yes, we can point to that. I'm not disagreeing. We can point to specific politicians and things. But if I were to say, okay, a bunch of Sudanese refugees, by the way, a lot of the terrorist activity that's going on in Europe of late, where people have been dying, it's coming from a lot of Sudanese refugees that it's just impossible to bet entirely. But we're getting thousands of them into Peoria. Isn't that going to be awesome? It's not like we already have unemployment problems and stuff in Peoria. And realistically, we probably will have some ter terrorist activity. But these people need a home. You're cool with that, right? You have no misgivings about that, right? Do you have to be Trump to have misgivings about that? I'm not saying that we shouldn't. I'm not saying we should. I'm just saying we have all of us. Even those of us flamingly to the left. I'm pointing to my right, your left, so you can get my point. Flamingly to the left. We all struggle with people who aren't us. We all have this immediate, no, that's fine, that's fine, emotional reaction to people who are not us. So. You have to just, wait a minute, though. You have to define us. Yes, you do. Because Everybody just does. because a person is a color doesn't mean it's the actions sometimes that people have. It's Absolutely. Like what your description right now, mm -hmm. that there's a possibility that there's a whole bunch of people that would like to kill you or kill your family does not mean that you're against them as a people. Not necessarily. But the way I described it, let's say you've got 1,000, 2,000 people coming there, and you'll have maybe three of them will be terrorists. I mean, statistically, let's say two of them. One percent, or one, not even one percent, one-tenth of a percent. Two of the 2,000 people coming to Peoria are active terrorists who plan to do terrorist bombings in Peoria. Would you find yourself having an emotional reaction against allowing all 2,000 of them to come in if you didn't know which two of them were going to be terrorists? That's what I'm getting at. It's that emotional reaction where you say, yeah, I'm kind of judging this whole group because there's a, there's a small part that I have a problem with, and I don't know which part that is. It's not that it's wrong to try to vet people to not let terrorists in. What I'm saying is that emotional reaction going, but I don't know, you know, a lot of terrorist activity in the United States has been carried on by United States citizens. And yet we tend to go, yeah, but I can identify these people. That is on paper, and that has never actually been the case. Well, I, mean, I know that it doesn't actually work that way, and that everybody sure. is afraid of anyone who's not already, you know, if you're not already one of us, then, we, you know, let's try to make you not come in, because who knows who you might be. Right. But Rhode Island for about a minute and a half that's, the that. whole, that's That's supposed to be the point. It is. That the huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Yeah. All right. So where did this self-image of the KKK come from? I mean, if, if, if back in the 1860s and 1871, it was just 12 guys with burlap sacks and Nathan Dutford Forrest going, oh, the South will rise again, and, then, and didn't. I mean, where did this image with all the pointy hats and the cross and the, we're all going to save the country, where did that come from? Oh, yes. About 
Yeah, somewhat. <laughs> yeah, actually, somewhat, but it's all pointing back. Yes, but that's even pointing back. It's all kind of pointing back to the same things. Wasn't there a group in Europe that more those? Yes, yes, or it owed much of its creation to a movie. Because movies are powerful. There's a movie that came out called Birth of a Nation. Came out in, in 1915. Yes, that's the same year that the KKK came out. Look at the way that they're being portrayed here, dressed uh, like stylized versions of the historical Knights of Malta, this secret group, this, this society of knights that occasionally wore pointed hoods and things like that as part of their rituals. Yeah, these guys. Does this guy look like these guys? Sort of. Well, he's got a red tunic with a white cross, and he's a knight on horseback. They even refer to them as the Knights of Malta. So yeah, they're kind of going for that. Riding to the rescue of the besieged America, just like the Knights of Malta stood the line against those invading Turks. We need to stand the line against those invading not-Americans. In fact, movie's climax at the key point, you got the heroic clansmen riding to try to, to stop this brutish slave, an almost animalistic slave who tried to ravage an innocent white woman. And you're supposed to be rooting for the clansmen. Oh, I hope they get him. Oh, I hope they get him. And they do when they lynch him and everybody cheers. At the end of the movie, they successfully stop all those blacks from voting. Because the northerners came in and wanted the blacks to vote. But the Klansmen stood between them and the voting booths and stopped them. And you cheer, right? Most people in America cheer. Yeah. Clearly, it's this anti- War, anti-Europe, anti-World War One propaganda. It's not just racist. It's based on a very racist book. But the movie itself is, in many ways, actually more about World War One than it is about racism. Just like Planet of the Apes is more about racism than it is about monkeys. But it successfully resurrected this nothing of a fraternity. Fourteen guys with burlap sacks suddenly became an image. And everything that you mentally picture about the clan came from... One movie. So, help me out here. Because this is coming back to my media theory days in college. This is like the test case. There's never been a movie that more changed culture with one movie than this one. It created an entire political movement. created public opinion. So, help me out here. Which would you argue is the more persuasive appeal, even today? A clear explanation or a compelling narrative? Now, at least in the short run. It may not hold them. Just like I could sell you a car if I said, now, couldn't you picture yourself driving this car? I didn't say anything about gas mileage. I just said, couldn't you picture yourself driving this car? I made a compelling narrative. You buy it, you drive it home, you go, why did I do that? But in the short run, it's more compelling. How does a good sharing of the gospel share both? A good, clear explanation and a compelling narrative. You not only have to explain the gospel every good story that you tell from scripture, every good story that you tell about God should have its basis in scripture. We even just talked about this on Friday night. Should you have proper theology? Or should you have 
a, a personal relationship? You know, yes. If you focus on personal relationship and having this warm, fuzzy feeling relationship, yeah, I don't care about the details about proper theology. This is not as healthy as it looks. If you say, my theology is solid, you go, how do you feel about God? What's your relationship with him? You go, I don't understand the question, but my theology is solid. You're not going to save anybody. You're not going to change anything. You're not going to help anybody. You need to be able to say, this is truth, and this is how it changes a person. You need to be able to, to, to see both of those things, which isn't really hard. You do that with almost everything else you talk about. I talk about a cup score, and then I talk about how cool the game was. I talk about, this is what the pizza looked like, and it tasted amazing. Let me tell you about it. Almost everything in your life, when you, if it matters to you, you will explain the details, and you will explain why it matters. No, because yeah, exactly. Because they're busy they're too busy being good Christians and and destroying their enemies. They're defending the faith, they're defending their country, and destroying their enemies as good Christians should. They base it on the Bible. They're quoting the Bible all over the place. Just not accurate theology. Not I mean there's cherry pickings in the Bible. Yeah. The third version of the KKK grew during the 1950s, 1960s with the civil rights movement. As the civil rights movement comes up, and, uh, well, I mean, like post-World War II, it's hard, once everybody's kind of been thrown together, post-World I, post-World War II, it's hard to sit there and say, uh, if you're Catholic, we should hate you. If you're Italian, we should hate you. It starts getting muddled. Too many people sat in foxholes with one another. It didn't. It just kind of it just kind of waned a little bit after World War II, and then starting in in because like I said, you get back from being in foxholes with everybody and being in tank crews with everybody, and you're like, yeah, prejudice is a little bit harder to do. But once you start actively as a government trying to focus on desegregating schools and things like that, mm, that's going to be problematic. And so they returned with a specifically pro-Southern sentiment. So it's not until you get in the 50s and 60s that they start waving the Confederate flag, though, as we discussed, that was never the Confederate flag, right? Nobody ever flew that flag. So, anyway, but they used all the same tactics. Now we're back to lynchings and burnings and things like that. But they also created more legitimate public faiths. They got charismatic leaders like a guy named David Duke, who's still making noises. You know, they still people still quote David Duke and stuff, which is bizarre. Well, he's running for office. Yeah. Um, and what's really interesting is now they, the, the, the clan, not every part of the clan, but a lot of parts of the clan, intertwine Confederate rhetoric and the South will rise again, any kind of things, with conservative Christian rhetoric. So there's a lot of Bible quoting with the rhetoric of other uh, white supremacy movements like the neo Nazi movement. It's all being thrown together. And you go, wait a minute. But the last version of the Klan was against the Nazis and was waving American flags, and now you're waving Confederate flags. Can you picture changing your tactics and even changing your bedfellows? Because the, the basic idea is anybody who's not us, we want to get rid of them. And, and even, as, even as society or others kick the legs out from under that stool, you just go find other legs. Tell me out. What bedfellows are we as conservative Christians pressured into considering attaching ourselves to? Yeah. 
Well, but they're automatically Christians, aren't they? By the way, it's not like, because I'm not necessarily talking about Republicans, Democrats here, but it's not like there are rich Democrats. Somehow that amazes me that people don't realize that there's rich people on both sides. No, no. What else? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I know that this might explode the issue, but it's interesting to what? Where are you guys Oh, yeah. Oh, even before then, technically, but yes. I mean, more, more, it became more of a thing. But, um, but I wanted, this may not seem like a big deal, and it's not like I would, I would necessarily vote against him, but I was amazed at how many Christians said we wanted to vote for Mitt Romney because he holds our same values. You know, he's a Mormon. He's the only officially non-Christian ever to run for office. And the entire Christian church said, <gasps> Mitt Romney! Thank you! But people didn't vote for Kennedy because he's Catholic. Exactly. That yeah, that was an argument. So there's, it's just interesting to me the things that we tend to jump and go, well, I can't support him, he's Catholic. Well, I must support him, even though he's Mormon. And I'm not saying that Mormons are bad. I'm just saying it's interesting that we as Christians say, I'm going to assume this part of what I believe to support that part of what I believe. Well, and I think, you know, as, uh, in politics, uh, we, we tend to think that we're their heads around. There are all these broken people that we can we can bring in. None of them will make everything okay. They're all broken. They've all got things wrong. But once we start saying, ah, this person will fix it. This person will ride in and make sure everything's okay. And they'll, they'll make sure that the country's back on track again. I'm like, <laughs> we don't like that particular mindset. If you remind yourself. Are you going to say something? Okay. So, this guerrilla tactics of that original KKK had two unintended, several, but especially unjustified anti-black laws in the South. Because they're like, well, if the government's even pushing us farther, then to keep the peace, we kind of have to keep those blacks in their place. And the government's like, well, we're already going to decide where to fight our battles. Fine. If, that, if, if we will try to stop the KKK, and you guys, in order to feel comfortable then, feel like you need to pass some laws, fine, whatever. So you get to what's called the Jim Crow Laws. Anybody hear the, that expression before? Okay, named after a minstrel character, Jim Crow. What do you know about the minstrel shows? Yeah. Well, yeah, this particular character, like the most popular today, was actually a white guy painting in blackface. But yes, it's this... Uh, every stereotype you'd ever want to think of of an African-American and let's make fun of those stereotypes. So it's tremendously offensive. And oh yeah, well, anybody ever see uh, the movie Holiday Inn? Yeah, there's a whole scene we just got to fast forward through because it makes me sick to my stomach. So these laws were extended to what was extensions of what were called the Black Codes, 
and were intended to keep them from becoming fully integrated members of the community. So, blacks couldn't hold political office. They couldn't start a business without a license from white people. Um, they, no illiterate people were allowed to vote in elections, and since blacks were given substandard uh, education, most of them remained illiterate. All of which consciously designed to keep black people from being part of the organization and the leadership in, in southern communities. Now, there's a whole bunch of, of critics in America today that say we, we have new, black, uh, new Jim Crow laws that, that are consciously designed to keep black people down. For instance, there's harsher penalties for the sellers of crack cocaine than simple powdered cocaine. And since most of the sellers of crack cocaine are African Americans, clearly this is a Jim Crow law designed to, to incarcerate more blacks. It's an interesting question. Um, the Movement for Black Lives, which is a political group stemming off of the Black Lives Matter movement, has issued a bunch of demands about political change in our country, and one of them was the immediate and retroactive decriminalization of prostitution and all drug-related crimes, since prostitution and drug-related crimes are predominantly carried out by African Americans. Therefore, the fact that our prisons are filled with people who have done prostitution and drug-related crimes, that means most of them are African Americans. Therefore, if we try to enforce those laws, it's because we're consciously trying to single out black Americans. Therefore, Jim Crow laws. Now, the statistics bear out. Does that mean the conclusions are valid? Before you say yes, you say no. How much of your answer is based on what you feel like you'd like to be true? I don't know, but I know a lot of white people who are involved with drugs. Yeah. And it makes me angry that they would even have laws. I don't care what color you are. If you are harming people and selling it and stuff, I think you should have some problems. Of course, that's a presupposition. I mean, in prostitution, clearly, it's a victimless crime. And drugs, if it makes you happy, what's the problem? Except that other people are raising other people's kids because they keep people well, drugs. That that's part of it, but it's also, I think you could say, why would we live in a country where they say, I'm sorry, you have to drive the speed limit? If we are comfortable with telling people how to do that, how can we say drugs and prostitution are victimless crimes? It's okay, anybody can do that as long as it makes them feel good. Well, if that's the case, oh, I'm drug 90. Point is, whether or not you agree with this particular movement, whether or not you agree in new, black, new Jim Crow laws, there are situations where we at least tacitly even, even unconsciously, disempower groups today. Um, we make it, um, at various points in history, we've made it extremely easy for people to migrate to the United States illegally, and then extremely complicated for them to get licensed once they do, or documented once they do. We, we have horrible inner city schools where we, we have ancient textbooks and dilapidated school buildings, and we stick our worst teachers there and then we stick the, the problem kids from the worst neighborhoods there, and then we say, look, they aren't learning anything. Why, they're, 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 they're savages. They treat their own building, their own textbooks badly, so why should we invest in them? So let's give them the worst textbooks in the world. And it's a cycle. It keeps making it worse and worse and worse. Not that if you just gave them a new textbook, everything would be okay, but we, we do tacitly, unconsciously or consciously, create situations where we disempower people you need to be aware of that. Yeah. I 
slides here at the Texas like, schools get more funding based on the test scores. And so if you have a population starting out not doing so well because their parents don't do so well, they almost have, you know, they have very little hope because you know, the schools don't get all the resources they need to really help those kids need more help. And yet it's a complicated issue. Because in Illinois recently, they said, all right, well, then why don't we pull some funding from the schools that are doing well, that don't really need the help as much, and give it to some of the schools of need, which does make sense, because they're doing well. To which all those schools say, wait a minute, did we just get punished for doing this right? Seriously? I mean, those schools where you had corrupt officials and people who were absolutely inept, you're taking our money where we're actually helping kids and throwing it into that empty pit? Really? It's not a simple answer. But again, nothing worthwhile ever is. Sharecropping. You ever heard of this expression? This entirely new lower class of African Americans emerges in the South. Here's how sharecropping works. Sharecropper gets land and seed from a landowner. And in exchange, he's like, I'm going to give you a share of my crop, like half of my crop. So he buys food and clothing on credit while he's trying to. And he, rents the house that he's living in, etc. He plants and harvests the crop. At the end of it, he gives the, the, the landowner crops to sell, and the landowner gets half the earnings. And, and minus, of course, all the costs and stuff that the guy has incurred by renting the house and buying the food and buying the seed and all that kind of stuff. At that point, the, the landowner says, by the way, you actually owe me more than you made because you bought all that seed and bought all those clothes and all that food that you've been, you've been renting the property. At which point, to pay the debt, the sharecropper says, all right, can you extend me a loan on credit at interest, and I'll just give you a larger share next year? You see how that will never end? By the way, title loan places never use them. Terrifyingly, sharecroppers usually had it worse than the slaves did. It's a worse involvement because at least with the slaves, the owners had a vested interest. Much like I want to take care of my car, take care of my house, I want to at least vaguely take care of my slaves. But a sharecropper? I don't care. I really don't. So a class of horribly poor, painfully undereducated, because the kids now have to work. They can't go to school, because they, we've got to do our level best to get as much as we possibly can. Painfully undereducated African Americans rose up in the South and perpetuated all the stereotypes that justified the Jim Crow laws, because everybody goes, well, you can't put them in charge of anything. Look how undereducated they are. Can't educate a black guy. They don't even go to schools that we give them. But, but you set up the system that way. Well, let's just not let, let's not complicate their simple lives by putting them in charge of things. Just go. But this was also happening to different sections of society, not just. I mean, with mining towns. Oh yeah. And, you know, I mean, it wasn't just. Yeah, it, it, like Hershey, Pennsylvania goes. That was that a wonderful place or a horrible place? Kind of depends on how you want to think about it. But yeah, this happened all over the place. But it, it became a, a societal norm in the South about sharecroppers that were almost. Not always, but almost invariably African-American. So you get this massive growth in poverty after the Civil War. Huge, huge spike in poverty, even within the cities. So the church says, we need to actually be involved in social reforms. We have been involved in different times. We've seen that in our class several times. The church is like, we really need to step up our game. An example of that, first one we're going to talk about, isn't even in America, though it does bleed into America. The Christian Revival Society was formed. There was a guy, a British Methodist minister uh, named William Booth, who felt a need to reach out to the lost and the poor in London. And so he did street ministries, 
Uh, he tried to reach out to prostitutes and beggars and pickpockets and all those people that lived on the London streets. And for the longest time, that only worked so far. But eventually, he and his wife created the Christian Revival Society. And they held meetings every night in an abandoned warehouse, and they put together soup kitchens, and they did all sorts of good work. Which is good, right? By 1878, the Christian Revival Society began referring to itself not just as a place of worship or as a charitable organization, but they called themselves a, a salvation army. We are an army of people working together for the salvation of others. We're soldiers for the cross. And eventually that name comes down. It was a Christian mission for a while, and eventually they just said, yeah, everybody just knows this is the salvation army. Let's just call it something. Now, what's interesting is it began to morph um, into, a, into a church, a, a unique church, but a church, and they began to move away from classic Methodist preaching. Not entirely, but tweaking it. So, members and ministers became officers with ranks and insignias and uniforms. And if you ever want to look at that, you can go online and look at the nifty rank insignias and things. Um, so you can be a captain, a major, a cadet, a lieutenant, a commissioner, etc. They even created their own flag that you will probably see different places, which is actually flown on the moon, which I think, find interesting. A lot of people will say it's the only flag ever the, other than the United States flag ever to be flown on the moon, which is total bunk. Because they took, they've taken a bunch of different flags. I think they took all the flags from the UN and flew them on the moon when they, when they went up. So, but, it's like the only not, well, all the state flags also. There have been a lot of flags, and this is one of them that's flown on the moon. During the 1972 Apollo 16 mission, Captain John Young took three small, like little desk flags, uh, as a personal favor for the wife of the Philadelphia Salvation Army Advisory Board Chair, and then brought it back so that they could auction them off for seriously good money. But he also moved the church past the normal theological boundaries. So, for instance, he combined a post-millennial view. What is post-millennial? What is post-millennial referring to? Okay. The church has been growing, uh, improving the lot of mankind over time and pressing the church. At the end? At a pinnacle. Right. So, you've heard people talk about the millennium thousand-year reign of Christ, what have you. Post-millennials say, in essence, now is that thousand-year reign. It may not be actually a thousand years, but it's a large chunk of time where Christ is working in the world to make it better and better and better, at the pinnacle of which, at the end of which, he will come back again and rapture his church. That's post-millennial. So he combines post-millennial view with the perfectionist trend that we've heard from a bunch of different groups. What's perfectionism in this case? The belief that if you work really hard, if you really apply yourself, if you pray, if you study scripture, a redeemed Christian will become personally sinless. You can get past having sin in your life. So you put that together, you put it together, and you develop this doctrine that if Christians, like the Salvation Army, work hard enough, you can heal this broken, sinful world, you can heal the people into it, it can reach sinful, sinlessness, and finally be good enough that Christ will return which, in part, helps explain why the Salvation Army is so very, very good at helping people. It's like there's a theological interest in this. It's like we can make them perfect. We can be perfect, we can make them perfect, and we can make the world perfect, and then Christ will return. It actually makes some sense. You may or may not agree with it, and it's not like it's being selfish. It's just this is the theological bent for it. So they don't do like the gospel, and then Jesus is 
It's only a gift of salvation. They don't no. really stress that. Well, they would stress that it's a gift, but they'd stress that it's a gift, but they would say that you're intimately intertwined in the gift and certainly in the sanctification of that. In, 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 in becoming holy after you've been made holy, getting increasingly holy. But again, that's I don't want to get into Calvinism or Arminianism, but the idea is, is like once you've accepted Christ, you have a responsibility. Even Paul says you have a responsibility to work toward holiness. They would say, yeah, it's your responsibility to work toward holiness. So, he also believed all this required a focus on the inner soul rather than on the trappings of Christianity, the outer stuff. So, they don't do sacraments like baptism or communion or any of that kind of stuff because they're like, no, all it does is confuse things. You need to focus on your inner man. Don't do any of the outer stuff because you need to be focused on yourself and you need to be focused on reaching out to others. So, what's interesting is, um, because they look so different from most traditional churches, I mean, they don't, they don't have baptism, they don't have communion, um, they're dressed in uniforms, they have rights. A lot of people don't realize it's a church. They think of it as a charitable organization. They don't, they don't realize it's a church just like we're a church. The Salvation Army is a church. It's just a church that's extremely missions-minded. But it is a church. Most people are like, oh, I, I love to give to the Salvation Army. I'm a little uncomfortable. I don't always give to my own church because of, but I love giving the Salvation Army at, at Christmas time because they got a bell. And it's like, I think you misunderstood the whole point of how you should give and why you should give. And you don't just give to them at Christmas time if you think it's important. Sigh. Even the U.S. government works with the Salvation Army punkily. They, they use them with a lot of secular community projects, even though technically the Salvation Army is legally classified as a church with the government. So even what's really interesting is to hear the government talking about, we can't work with a church here. That's a, that's a church-state issue. You give aid to the Salvation Army. Well, yeah, it's a charitable organization. It's a church. It's a private charitable organization. It's a church. Your own records say it's a church. I don't begrudge it. I'm like, yay. I just think it's hysterically funny. In fact, the Salvation Army has come under fire because they're like, well, you're proselytizing during government works projects. You go, it's a church. It's called the Salvation Army. Which part of this are you not tracking with? As well as the, the, the Salvation Army, well, except the, the California branch, um, has said we, we're not going to... Sorry. It's true! <laughs> I know. The, the, the Salvation Army says we're not going to hire homosexuals in, in the upper echelons. I mean, we've got a lot of volunteers, and, we, and we've got a lot of employees, and, and we hire, we're willing to hire homosexuals as employees, but not as commissioners and you know, people who are in major leadership. And people have come up, it's come up in front because people are like, well, but you're a government group. You're a, private, you're a public organization. At which point the Salvation Army goes, no, we're a church. We're protected. We don't have to do that. Except for the California branch, which said, we're fine with doing that because that's more important than anything. At which point everybody else in the Salvation Army went, what? And censured them in the, in the California branch. Went, our mistake, our mistake, our mistake. And they no longer do that either. But it gets, my point is, it gets, things get really weird. It gets really fuzzy between the United States government and the Salvation Army because nobody knows what it is. Nobody really knows how to work with it. And I'm like, I find it amusing every time I hear it. I have a question. question. Yeah. So is there I, I like grew a, up in the Salvation Army. Yep. My dad was a lay leader for 50 years in Harlem. Yep. I didn't agree with 
And, but then your first-hand example, the, the heart is awesome. I mean, the heart is just such a warm heart toward reaching people. I'm sorry, you were going to ask a question. Is there a church you can go to on Sunday event that... Yes. yes. I've just never seen one. Oh, there's not a church, separate church building. Okay. But there's Salvation Army headquarters and stuff? Yeah. I mean, different ones do different things, but yeah, usually it's like at the Salvation Army headquarters. Or where was where were the church services held when you were growing up? Well, there's not. And I'm a tenement at the server in Harlem, 27th Street. Middle Harlem is on the 25th Street. My dad was a lady there. Now, it's not. I actually went to the funeral of his great-granddaughter. My sister was a friend of his often. She went to the same church at this kind of church that my sister went to. My sister spoke of her. Now, it's not so they don't they don't close their church services to people. I and mean, yeah, you could go to their church service sometime. You just don't t usually tell people about that because because um, that's specifically focused on their people. Those church not that it's not open to other people, but those church services are specifically focused on Salvation Army members. And my dad went there because when he came from Sweden, they had a Scandinavian corps. He was in Swedish. I'm going to give him a nickel. It's a wonderful segue. So I was going to say, uh, today the Salvation Army boasts nearly 2 million members, not including the 100,000 employees and the 4.5 million volunteers, many of whom may not even be Christians, but operating in 127 different countries and provide services in 175 different languages. So it's all over the place. Because well, it's a really complicated tangle, because so much of what they do is essentially public ministry as opposed to private. At what point do you, now the proselytizing, that's one of the things that the ACLU jumped on, or the homosexuality thing, that's one of the things that the ACLU jumped on. But so much of their ministry is so secular in focus and even structure that it's hard to know at what point you crossed from the churchy bits to the secular bits. It's a complicated tangle. But yes, the ACLU, like, it's constantly watched out in these things. Well, the thing is, is that what they run up against probably is if they say, okay, well, we're just going to stop doing what we're doing. Well, they you wouldn't, know, but yes, I mean, what this, well, I, the, maybe the government would go, don't poke them too hard. You know, just, these guys are doing good work. So. Well, it's just like when healthcare reform was first, like in the 90s, okay, yep. you know, well, you can't lift off abortions. Well, then all the Catholic hospitals were like, well, then we're, we're going to public health Okay, I'm going to end with this. That same year, Bishop Henry Egley baptized a woman. That's that's where we're going to pick up next week. Fully intended to get a whole lot farther than that this week, but we had fun, and that's fine. But next week, Egley's baptizing a woman. <gasps> we'll talk about why that's a problem. Would you join us in prayer? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that you have superintended the, the strength of your church. You use messed up people. You use beautiful people. You use, you use all of us to accomplish your ends, to reach your people. So I pray, Lord, help us to have your heart. Help us not to be, help us not to be quite so much against people as we are for you. Help us to be willing to admonish 
to, to stand up for truth. But I pray, Lord, that you help us to do that to win people, not to beat people. So I pray, help us to have the right heart as we love one another well as an act of worship to you. We give all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.